Hey everyone, welcome to Savage to Sage, where we explore the evolution of entrepreneurs. In this show, we hear from leaders on the challenges and breakthroughs that have shaped them on their journey toward becoming a sage. Welcome back everybody to Savage to Sage. I am Daniel Fuller, the host. I should say co-host now uh, because Kyle Maloney just joined as another co-host, which we're really excited about. And you'll be hearing more from him in the coming weeks. Um, Today, I have the pleasure of being joined by Dan Stewart. Dan is the founder of Happy Grasshopper. Dan, welcome. Uh, Thank you, Daniel. How are you? You know, I am getting my energy back, I think, after the Thanksgiving break. I don't know about (laughs) you, but it was one of those um, Monday and Tuesday. I was like, oh, man, I slept a lot. But yeah, just getting the energy back, getting back into motion taking some time this week so um, come on man snap to it (laughs) snap to it yeah as we record this it's the last day of november like we have 30 days left essentially in this year less when we take out holiday time off uh there's still a ton of impact we can make before the end of the year yeah i actually needed that pep talk yeah that's that's a good pep talk to finish (laughs) out the year and for this show to be lively too so when i saw was researching you, never having met you before today. I was really excited about this show just because of how you describe your company and yourself on Happy Grasshopper website, specifically how you really tap into the the human side of of being an entrepreneur. I think people like you and me tend to focus on the highlight reel and all the great things that we've done. But I saw in, in your description kind of more of a the human element of what's, you know, failure and success and the le- the lessons learned along the way. And so talk to me a little bit more about Happy Grasshopper and just the practicals of what you do and then how you came to kind of where you are today with your serial entrepreneurial journey. Awesome. Okay. Well, so Happy Grasshopper is a tech-enabled services company. Uh, we solve the problem of database management. So whether it's new leads, uh, recruits, uh, past clients, uh, we examine every segment of our members' databases, and then we create and deliver the right content via email, text, ringless voicemail drop, uh, handwritten card, and uh, social media post to create the conversations they need to have to accomplish a specific goal. And Uh, The reason this exists, like the reason I'm doing this at all is because of the last tech company I was part of. I exited that company a little over 12 years ago, and I never got past the frustration of having so many customers who bought our stuff and didn't actually use it. (laughs) Anyone in the SaaS space can relate to this. You have some percentage of users that are just, they bought shelfware. That's what we used to call it pre-SaaS days, Mm -hmm. right? Well, the, the issue was, it was content, essentially. We, we had this realization that our franchise clients for whom we built this white label software, we would roll it out to the franchisee and the franchisee would be like, okay, yeah, okay, great, we'll use it. And then they just didn't really like the content. Because, you know, think of the, the varying needs between a brand and an individual operator. Like the brand is extolling its virtues, its competitive advantages, its cultural hallmark. That's all the, th- all the reasons people would buy the franchise are encapsulated there. But the actual franchisee 
they need to interact and engage with people who can acquire their services, right? Customers. And if you show up like just a marketing engine instead of like a real human being, uh, you're robbing yourself of the conversations that actually lead to sales. So, you know, that was my suspicion when I started this company 12 years ago. And today we're nurturing a whopping 37 million contacts for our members. And uh, the data is really clear. Uh, people want to be treated like human beings, not like sales targets. So that's what we help our members do. I love it. So you describe yourself as a serial entrepreneur. And I know a lot of people say that. So what does that mean for you specifically? Well, it means I've failed more than the average person. <laughs> that's for sure. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I think uh, a lot of people grow up with an idea that their whole life is planned out in front of them and they just know exactly what to do one thing after another. I'm not that guy. I'm the furthest thing from that guy. I grew up with the idea of, oh, I'm so curious about, like, I want to understand this thing. I want to understand that thing and the other thing. That curiosity, I, I didn't really realize it at the time, but it gave me a broad enough base of interest to where I could see connections and patterns between uh, a varying body of, of topics. As an employee, uh, like my last corporate America job, I kind of chafed in that role. They wanted me to run their playbook, and I was constantly trying to see a way to do things differently, more efficiently, more effectively. Uh, how can we make it scale? And I realized because our clients at that business, they were all small business owners, I realized, oh my gosh, I'm on the wrong side of the table. I'm much more like my clients than like my peers uh, at corporate America. So I thought, well, I'll, hey, I'm 28. I'm earning 150 grand a year. I'm going to leave this job and start my own company. It's going to be great. And uh, 90 days later, uh, I turned to my wife and I said, we're out of money. <laughs> I'm so sorry. I screwed up. Uh, and I had to go get a job again. Like that was really painful. So I, I'm, I'm down a rabbit hole here, Daniel. Uh, to answer your question more succinctly, I think for me, being a serial entrepreneur means following my fascination through a series of failures until a place I found success. I like it. Yeah. Yeah. And it seems like you can really, sometimes I think a lot of entrepreneurs will will hide the failures because it's it feels like so exposing and like shameful. But from what I've gathered, you want to be more willing to share those. And so like, what is it for you that makes you more ready to share that that you failed versus kind of hide those failures in, in the <laughs> shameful place? <laughs> well, gosh, speaking of sharing, I think the answer to that question requires a lot more of it. You know, some people are raised with great parents and a stable home. Uh, I'm not one of those people. You know, my parents loved us, but they weren't really well equipped to provide a lot of stability. Both parents suffered from alcoholism. I had 14 schools before I graduated from high school. There was so much change uh, in my childhood. It was like change, 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 change. And, you know, you get kind of used to being the new kid. You have to get to know people really quickly. You have to build friendships really quickly. And I think that lesson, like one of the big takeaways for me is that no matter where I moved, 
no matter the different people I met, there was always some common ground. And the people I always enjoyed the most weren't those that were fronting or you know, puffing their chests and trying to look like they were more than they were. It was the humble people who had found success and yet were happy to share the challenges along the way. So I love to share that, you know, no matter where you are in life, uh, if I can get to where I am, you can certainly get to wherever you aspire to go. And I really truly believe that if we ask for help, we're going to get it. It's hard for us not to respond when people ask for help. It's in our human nature to help one another. I've certainly been helped by countless people and I just feel an obligation to pay it forward. Yeah, that's, I, I love that share. Partly because I think it, a lot of times we think in the DNA of entrepreneurs, you know, it's like you have to figure it out yourself and, and not ask for help. And asking for help is, is a sign of weakness. But from what I hear you saying, you're saying the opposite almost that asking for help is almost to you a sign of strength, if, if I interpret what you're saying correctly. Yeah, I, I 100% believe that. Uh, we do it so naturally as children. Like, we're just curious. We want to know. We ask questions all the time. And then at some point, we're taught that it's annoying to people to ask questions. And then we find ourselves in a leadership position. And all of a sudden, it feels like we're expected to have all the answers. And uh, we, we lose our ability to ask. You know, one of the lessons I learned from uh, a mentor of mine, a mentor to millions, uh, Tony Robbins, is that you know the quality of our questions really determines the quality of our outcomes. So yeah, I would encourage everybody to not be shy. If you don't understand something, ask. Uh, you can ask yourself too. You don't always have to ask someone else. Yeah, we could we could spend a long time specifically on that topic, especially as it relates to to sales and what Happy Grasshopper does. I'm I'm curious more of the angle of from you as a leader especially in those early days of like, maybe, let's just think about Happy Grasshopper in your early days, Happy Grasshopper. Like what, what did that look like for you? We call those days the savage days where it's like you just have to figure it out and run hard uh, to succeed, to make revenue as a company, to get new customers. And so what did that look like for you to have more of that posture of, of curious questions during those days? Well, uh, I started out with a hypothesis that I wanted to prove or disprove as quickly as possible. Uh, Happy Grasshopper is the seventh company I've started. And, you know, I, in the past, I'd spent far too much time uh, and treasure trying to build something that just wasn't viable. So, you know, my suspicion that I needed to validate in the marketplace was that sales professionals needed content that helped them feel authentic and less salesy. Probably a bunch of listeners right now can relate to this. You may have expertise in a field and then you're taught that you have to grow a business, you have to learn to sell. Most people have some role rejection when it comes to sales. No one really grows up saying, I'm going to be an astronaut. I'm going to be an engineer. I'm going to be a salesperson. Like that, that just doesn't happen. We just find ourselves needing to do this thing and so we look around for some help to figure out what to do. And uh, too often in the past, the answer has been, well, well, we'll learn to manipulate other people. 
We'll learn 67 tie down closes. Like we'll, we'll learn to uh, insert scarcity and fear of loss and FOMO. And I just really want to push back against all of that because at the end of the day, sales is really about helping people get what they want more efficiently. That's it. Like so many times when we're in a a one-to-one sales conversation with someone, they're so guarded. You can sense it right from the start. They're like, okay, where's the pitch? Where's the catch? I know it's coming. And then if it doesn't show up and you position yourself as someone who would never deliver that, the sales not only become easier, right? They become a lot of fun. It's great fun to help people get what they want, right? As opposed to forcing them to sign a contract. Did you close them? Did you kill it? Did you crush your goals? I, I want to push back against all that. You know, how many people did you help is what I'm more interested in. Yeah, I love that. Just, I mean, I'm not going to share my whole story, but it would just suffice it to say I came from helping professions in, in the nonprofit space, started on the front lines, serving some of the most vulnerable people in Indianapolis, and then, you know, have found my way into sales. And one of my biggest fears was, how can I do this authentically when my picture of a salesperson was the salesy person that no one wanted to get a phone call from, or the person that you're trying to avoid when you go looking for a car or when you're walking through a store and you know, you're pursued by someone that's trying to sell you a product. And so that, that was my perception. And I, I basically had made this vow like that will never be me to the resistance of like completely considering being in a sales role at all. Uh, because I just thought that's what you had to do. Like you had to manipulate and you had to just bang down the door, you know, to get people t- to buy yeah. from you. It's hard to be excited about building your company if you have to get up every day and do something you can't stand. If you don't see it as part of who you are, how are you ever going to keep it up? Like, I want abs, but I hate sit-ups. That's not a recipe for success. <laughs> We're not going to get there. We have to figure out how to build our companies in a way that's in complete congruity with what we're actually willing to do. I mean, it's nearly impossible to build a company from nothing to success. It's a really hard road. Uh, don't make it harder for yourself by requiring your, your uh, daily activities to include all sorts of things that don't feel right. It's, it's just too hard. Life's too short. Yeah, exactly. And yeah, and that's what I think a lot, like a feedback from, you know, both from partners in our company, but then also from, from our market, from our clients of like, I heard so many times, you know, with those first sales that I made from my partners at full stack, basically saying, Hey, Daniel, I just wanted you to know, like this client reached out to me and said, like, the reason that we're coming on board is because of Daniel's authentic approach to this, you know, and I think it was like just a, such an affirmation of me to like keep keep going, you know, keep f- figuring out how you can be more authentically yourself in this process. And so, I I just love that you're you're encouraging that and you're equipping people to do that because uh, you definitely feel like I don't know it in this role in. And I know in talking with a number of sales leaders and professionals, like approaching sales and business that way, it still feels countercultural, even though it probably statistically is is not anymore. And so I'm just I'm really glad that you're 
heading in that direction and helping equip people. Well, thank you. Uh, I appreciate that. And I, I might add that if you explore any industry, like, you know, go to an insurance agent convention, go to a real estate convention, go to a, a mortgage convention, uh, you'll find a bunch of people who are still, you know, in the tie down manipulative sales mode. And you'll, you'll notice that their performance is always much lower than the people who just, you know, they show up as authentic people who are there to serve others. You know, it said nice guys finish last. That's just not true in sales. Uh, I mean, it's just not. People who are willing to, to be vulnerable, transparent, authentic, people who are good listeners, uh, who ask the right questions to really make sure they understand that purchasing whatever good service offer is uh, available, it's an act of love. It's an act of trust. It's an act of compassion to make sure that this is really what's best for that person. And, you know, they'll send more customers your way when you do it the right way. That's so true. Uh, I want to go back to something you've probably learned and I, I know you shared before we hit record here, and that's um, how you find the people that and how you found the people for Happy Grasshopper to to partner with you to join the team, you know, as, as kind of early team members. What's been important to you? Because I'm sure you probably learned the hard way with making the wrong choices or, you know, mistakes in doing that in the past. Mm. Uh, so one of my core beliefs is that everything in life is easier through relationships. Like, you know, a lot of parents say things uh, when we're younger that don't feel really good. Like, doesn't matter who you know, Daniel, or it doesn't matter what you know, Daniel, it's who you know that counts, right? Maybe you had a relative who said those kind of things. The reality is we all build relationships in our lives. And if we nurture those, if you know, we show up as authentic people, those relationships are what's going to help us get through. And, you know, so in the seven companies I've founded, it's been the relationships I have with people early on where they're willing to jump in and be part of it. It's one thing to advertise and attract a candidate for a role, run an interview process. It's a whole other thing to say, hey, Daniel, I have something I'd love to get your input on. I think this is a great fit for you. What do you think? Do you want to be part of it? When we have that rapport and relationship, it's so much easier to do it that way. And the, the match is better. The commitment to the goals of the project is higher. Uh, and it's a lot more enjoyable. It's a lot more enjoyable. Yeah. Talk about your team now of Happy Grasshopper and like how many people are on the team and how, how did you find and decide on those like people that were your key, key first hires, key people to join the team? <laughs> I'll, t I'll tell you a quick story and then I'll explain what we grew to. So uh, half the genesis of Happy Grasshopper, where this came from, was uh, I had recently exited a software company I built where uh, we created white label software for franchisors. They rolled out our software to the franchisees. The franchisees almost never used it, which was really irritating. That was the ulcer that was in my life at the time. It kept me up at night. So, you know, post exit, uh, I'm sailing a lot, I'm playing golf a lot. And after about 60 days, I was starting to get depressed. 
you know, I was thinking about how I didn't really need to exit. I just really needed a long vacation. And, you know, so having that break, that time to decompress, I had this like aha eureka moment where I realized the problem was the content. I, I mean, look at technology today. Everything sends messages. Uh, it's, it's not a technical challenge to organize a database and send messaging to it. The challenge is knowing what to say, when to say it, how frequently to say it, over what duration to say it, how to orchestrate all those things in the way that's authentic to the, the individual is the challenge. And uh, so I had this eureka moment, I had this hypothesis, and I picked up the phone uh, from the golf course. I called uh, the person who was our CTO at the previous company. And I said to her, hey, I've got an idea. I can't wait to share it with you. What do you think? And she goes, I love it. What do you want to do about it? And I said, well, let's put up a landing page. Let's drive some traffic to it. Let's see if we can generate any interest here at all. And she says, great, I'll get right on it. Uh, What do you want to call it? And I said, it's just an experiment. It doesn't matter. This isn't a company. And she says, oh, great. I bought a URL I've been dying to use. What do you think of Happy Grasshopper? Like, so everyone asks us, where does your name come from? What, like, why did you choose that as a company name? And, you know, what actually happened was uh, we didn't pay any attention to the name at all. We put a landing page, we started driving traffic to it. Within about 60 days, we had 40, 50 customers. One of them was an influencer in the real estate world, a guy named Ben Kinney. And he talked about us on a webinar. And all of a sudden, we had like 150 agents sign up in one day. Like, oh my gosh, what's going on here? So we started to really focus on real estate as the vertical. And we kept pulling people into the company through these prior relationships. Like uh, two of our earliest salespeople in the company were people I had worked with at my last corporate job, you know, 15 years prior to starting this company. So again, like tapping those relationships uh, over time has made everything easier. Mm -hmm. That is so true. And I think also you, you really get a feel from those relationships, especially those that have been forged over time for like common values. And you know what people are like when, you know, things are going well, when things are going poorly uh, because of the relationships there. And I noticed another thing on your about page, I mean, you have, you have some very specific values. A lot of them I appreciate because they're more specific, not just, you know, one word saying like passionate, but you, you have phrases there that are very specific. Like, how do you make sure with those people that you've brought onto your team that those values aren't just like, you know, this sexy thing that you created on your website, but are actually (laughs) like living and living and breathing among your team members? Right. I'm so glad you asked this, Daniel. I really am because culture is not easy to get right. You know, when it's just you and a a small team, it's easy. But there's a point when you scale to a level that you can't be everywhere. You can't manage everything. Uh, And it's really culture that's going to make sure things are done the way they need to be done in that environment. You know, lots of companies do this kind of mission, vision, values sort of thing. It's an exercise you do in a workshop. Maybe it goes on the wall. Maybe it goes in a drawer. It's not really paid attention to. And, you know, a hard lesson for me earlier in my career was the cost of getting these things wrong. 
So uh, now not only do we pay very close attention to them, we encourage all of our clients to. So, you know, core values, like the first one you'll see on the website there is thoughtful. I specifically list that first because as the leader of this company, I know if I hire someone who's not thoughtful, they're going to fail. Thoughtful people tend to do the right things without instruction, and I abhor micromanagement. Uh, If I hire someone who's smart and capable, but they need me to lay out every single thing they have to do every day, and I have to go back and verify that everything was done the right way, they're just not going to work. So uh, to attract people who are thoughtful, uh, we have a thoughtful process that we put them through. So uh, most of our hires come through relationships. They come through people who are already here at the company. On the occasion that we've got a process going where maybe we're advertising on Indeed, we'll bring that person into a process where they have to demonstrate congruity with our core values. If they don't, they don't get hired. During the interview process, we talk through our core values. We, We need to see evidence of them. So rather than it being, okay, uh, core value number two is being intentional. Are you intentional, Daniel? Like what they're going to say, yes, of course they are. But what we're looking for is evidence that they're intentional by how they prepared for the meeting. You know, did they do research about our company? Did they arrive prepared to have that conversation? Are they aware of what we do? Uh, that, that shows evidence of being intentional. So, you know, generally, and I'll be detailed here, We'll have a respondent, we'll send something to them, asking them to do something that requires them to be thoughtful. When they've done that thing, which could be as simple as go to my calendar, book an appointment with me, and write in the appointment description uh, some of the things that are important to you right now. Like, what's most important to you about your next role? I want to, you know, get some of that. Are they filling that out or no? Did they just click reply on Indeed? When I get them in the first appointment, it's typically 10 minutes. And I'm looking to see if they've done any research uh, and what kind of communicator they are. You know, we're a communications company. We need people who are, are great verbal and written communicators. So we're looking for evidence of that early. Uh, if I invite them to the next stage, I'm sending them to 16personalities.com where they're taking a personality assessment. And then they're supposed to share that link with me and book another appointment for a second interview. So many people just don't go through that. They don't get to that point. If they do, I review their answers with them and I I ask them if they think it's accurate. You know, is this really who you are? Does this sound like you? And uh, then, like after we've done all of that stuff, it's time to really talk about their fitness for their particular role. Because if they don't match on culture, it doesn't matter how great they are on all the other things. There's no room right. for them. Yeah, I love that. Yeah, that's that's so good in terms of like that initial gatekeeping from a culture and a value perspective. Like how do you, how have you, or how do you sustain that kind of that focus on those values over time? Because I, I think what I've found is like, like anything, everyone can start there, but then you know, sustaining it over time can be really hard, especially in, in hard times, you know, when you get dealt a couple blows, you know, or you're going through some tough times with clients. So like, how do you, how do you sustain that? Life happens. Life happens for sure. It happens to everyone. So I, I think that 
the first core belief I shared with you is that relationships are the most important thing. Well, those relationships live in one place, inside conversation. If we're not in conversation with our people about our values, they don't exist. Like we have to engage them in regular conversation. So every Monday at 3 p.m., we have an all hands meeting and all of our employees from across the U.S. and around the world log into one Zoom. And usually the meeting follows the same structure. We spend the first few minutes talking about our wins, bringing up any order of business that everybody in the company needs to be aware of. A code update, a policy change, a, a new product announcement, whatever it might be, we're covering all of that uh, in the beginning of the meeting. Because no matter where they are in the company, we want everyone to be involved and informed. Then in the second phase of the meeting, we have wins and shout outs. So, you know, who'd like to go first? is basically the question. Do we have a volunteer? And someone will say, I'll go. And they're like, Daniel, I, th- I want to thank Daniel this week because he was so helpful last week. We had a client at XYZ who reached out with a concern. Uh, Daniel handled that immediately. And uh, I just want to thank him for that. Like, awesome. Thank you. know, they, they shared. And then we would pass the baton. So whoever it is that gets mentioned is the next person to go. And so, you know, it's usually like 20 minutes of working through all the different people in just a a real quick format. And we find new employees hear our cultural values being praised there. Like, you know, Daniel was really thoughtful in the way he handled that client issue. Uh, It was awesome. So it, it lives in the organization because we talk about it. If we didn't talk about it, it would cease to exist. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, we, we follow, um, a EOS. I don't know if you've heard of that. That's based on the book Traction. And we use a software that's called 90, it's 90.io and to help us to manage our weekly team meetings. And one of the things that we do is, is shout outs and we, we bring up our cultural values every other week during that call and just say like, let's, let's do shout outs to other team members for where they saw, you know, another person living into these and share as specific as possible. And yeah, it's just such a powerful time. And I think it's it's a reminder too that these weren't just these things that we we put on the wall, you know, or on the virtual wall in our case, you know, um, when we went through this mission, vision, values exercise. But it is something that, you know, we we regularly review and and think about and then evolve as well. Because I think you know, we started out with one idea of what those were. And then as we've grown, we realized, I think we really need to update or evolve these two. So yeah, super glad that you have that practice. So I'm just curious as we, as we wrap up and you hear Savage to Sage, one of the things that we've, it's been interesting where, where we've talked about on a number of interviews on the show where I've had the feedback from entrepreneurs where basically they said, Daniel, like this idea that you like give up the savage part as you like become more mature as a, as a person and an entrepreneur, like I, I disagree with that. And in a couple of cases, people would say, I'm like, I'm now on my sixth business and I'm more of a savage than I was, you know, when I first started. But the whole idea behind the concept of the show was you, you start at that place where the first time you're just 
you're trying to figure everything out and, you know, working a ton. And then hopefully as you've grown over time, you've gained in wisdom, you know, to become more of a sage. But I'm curious as you hear that, that concept for you and try it on, it's like, how do you, how do you see that evolution for yourself? Like over the time that you've started and failed and succeeded in various businesses? Uh, so quite a lot occurs to me uh, as you're sharing this. And first thing I would say is that any entrepreneur who achieves a respectable amount of success, and you know whatever those numbers are, it doesn't matter. It's always personal. But there's a point where other people regard you differently because of what your business has grown to. And, you know, for me and for a lot of people, that's an uncomfortable place to be. I know that my company is as strong as it is because of the quality of people who work here and the quality of member that we've been able to attract. Like, I can't claim credit for that. Uh, sure, I've been part of it. Uh, I, I know that my contributions have been valuable. I also know that I didn't accomplish it alone. It's definitely a team effort, and I'm eager to share that credit with the people who deserve it. If there's a place where we need to be savages, I think it's with ourselves, because there's so many things that, that we have to uh, be aggressive about and defend ourselves from, and most of that exists only in our minds. Market conditions change. Like uh, we will arrive at a point where some unexpected occurrence in our business could send us into uh, depression, uh, disaster mode. We, you know, can tear ourselves up about mistakes that we've made. And I, I think it requires a bit of savagery in the form of discipline to say, no, I'm not going to follow that road. I know what my intentions are. I know what our objectives are. Not everything has to work out along the way. Uh, I'm willing to make mistakes uh, in pursuit of my objective. And so I'll be savage and not beating myself up about it. I'll be savage in forgiving myself for uh, initiatives I've started that didn't pan out. That's what I think about. And one last little story I'll share here regarding this. I had such massive role rejection in my first corporate sales job, which was my last corporate sales job. Six weeks in, my boss calls me into her office and she says, Dan, uh, we all like you, but you can't stay. We're going to take your headset back because you're just not selling enough to justify your employment here. And, you know, for me, I had an infant at home. Our oldest daughter was newly born. That was a moment where a switch inside me tripped. And I, I like all of a sudden, uh, the right amount of pressure was there to form something that was stronger uh, than it would have been outside of those, those uh, forces of pressure. In that moment, I realized that I had to learn how to do this. And so I set off on this mission to like read all the books and become that manipulative guy, learn all the fear of loss stuff, because I just had to, had to, had to sell because I couldn't lose my job. I convinced them to keep me on. And uh, within the next year, I had become uh, promoted. Uh, I won sales contests. They sent me on vacations around the world. I won uh, over three years, I became the highest paid, fastest promoted sales rep in company history. And it felt like winning externally. Internally, it was a disaster because I knew I wasn't living congruently with who I actually was. I was just working through the motions. So I had to be a savage with myself then. 
I had to, I had to be a savage in that moment where I said, desperation has forced me to succeed at something I hate. I'll eat the lima beans for as long as I need to, uh, to store up enough fat to like survive the winter. Right. So that's when I left to start my first company. And, uh, 90 days later, I was out of business. Right. So I had to be a savage then. I had to not tear myself apart. I had to go get another job and build up my nest egg. Uh, to summarize, savagery, I think should be internal. And uh, we'll let the, the public decide if we deserve to be called sages or not. <laughs> <laughs> That's really good. Yeah. And man, again, I could, I could go on for a while here just in response to that. But one of the things I've been thinking about, because full stack, where I'm a partner and my job is to help grow our revenue. Um, we're in that, that season right now. We're in the fourth quarter. And um, for us, our business is, is very seasonal. This is our most intense quarter because we do some employee benefits. So it's benefit season. And I've found that this, the savagery, like you're talking about internally, for people like me in this role, but I, it could also apply, like I think of accountants during you know, March and April. (laughs) Sure. It's like, oh, this is really hard right now. And the savagery just becomes like, I'm, I'm going to basically take up really bad habits and not take care of myself and become a shell of a human being. Because that's what people do, you know, in our, in this space, you know, during this season. And I, I think there's something that shifted for me. And I've had this conversation with a number of people like you, where it's like the savagery becomes like, no, this is, this is hard. And this is actually an opportunity for me to lean more into like self, I call it self care or soul care of like, what's, what's the most important parts of me that need to be nurtured right now uh, to help me to go through this hard time, as opposed to like, instead of, you know, eating what I need to, to, to sleep well, to have the most energy, you know, I'm just going to start eating burgers and tipping back whiskeys because it's, it's really hard right now. And, um, I'm just curious to close, like I always end on this question, but I, I usually don't arrive at it with that thought, um, about burgers and whiskeys. (laughs) (laughs) When you lean into self-care and you have like an hour in a day where you can prioritize that or you have a day during the weekend where it's like, I need to take care of Dan and to nurture what's most important in me. Like what, what do you tend to choose to do for those times to really recharge? Well, uh, so I'm a dad, I have three kids. Uh, we live on a small horse farm just outside Tampa. So, you know, horses, a cow, chickens, dogs, cats, like all of that is here for me. And you know, the, the best fastest way for me to like get out of my head is to get into nature. And I I feel so fortunate that I have it literally just outside my door. Uh, Our barn is about 150 feet away from where I am right now. So, you know, you go and uh, you, you put your hand on a horse's neck, you feel their breathing, you feel that connection. And it's, it's like an instant transport away from whatever the stresses are. Uh, So I, I definitely have my moments where I appreciate the animals. I'll also say I, I'm 52 years old, so I don't do this like I used to. But uh, for a long time, I would love to uh, like grab my skateboard and go drop in on a vert ramp somewhere. 
Like it's, you know, heavy exercise where you're completely out of your head because uh, you just can't think about anything else when you're dropping in on a half pipe. There's no space for it. it it's, it's, for me, it's about tapping into flow. So I'm always looking for ways to do that. Uh, the guitars on the wall behind me help with that. Uh, nature and, you know, any kind of gliding sport I still love. Just not aggress- as aggressive as I used to be. For injury prevention, I'm guessing. Yeah. <laughs> Preservation. Yeah. Don't break. I don't, I don't want to break anymore. Exactly. <laughs> well, Dan, this has been fantastic. I appreciate your vulnerability and uh, in your what you shared. And I think this is going to resonate with a lot of our listeners. I appreciate it. If people want to get in touch with you and Happy Grasshopper, where, where would you point them? Uh, well, our company, happygrasshopper.com, you're welcome to go there and poke around. Uh, if you'd like to connect with me personally, just go to danstewart.com, S-T-E-W-A-R-T. You can book an appointment with me. You can follow me on social. Like, There's all sorts of things you can do once you get there. Um, so thank you, Daniel, for having me on today. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you. And best to you and your continual Savage to Sage journey. Let's do it, brother. Thank you for listening to today's interview. To view show notes or hear more episodes, please visit www.savagetosage.com.